We'd Like a Word. Welcome back to part two of We'd Like a Word with... Me, Stephen Colgan. And me, Paul Waters. And we have with us Felix Francis, author of Hands Down, and Andrew Grant, also known as Andrew Child, who, with Lee Child, is the author of No Plan B. And we'll be hearing from Rajman Gandhi as well at some point. Well, I was just I was just thinking to myself, actually, that um, obviously what you guys are doing is different to this. But there are some authors out there who in the past have had to take over the writing of an established series or an established character. I'm thinking particularly of people like Owen Colford uh, wrote a new Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book following on from, obviously, because Douglas died so young. And, um, you know, Christopher Tolkien's taken over from his dad. But the two of those authors have come under a bit of flack because there are purists out there, lots and lots of purists out there saying, oh, well, they don't write as well as the original authors. And it's almost as if, you know, no one can ever touch these characters ever again. They're sacrosanct and they can only ever be done by that author. I mean, have you had to face anything like that or have your readers been generally pretty good? Um, I've had to face a little bit of that. Um, I think that uh, a lot of people don't don't want to read my books because they they start they start off not wanting to read them because they don't they say they don't want to do damage to their memory of my father. Well, I perhaps ought to tell you how I got into this um, strange solitary business of writing books. I mean, I'd written bits of Dick Francis books for years, but my my mother and father decided they were going to retire. My mother's health wasn't very good. My mother had polio when she was 26 and it left her with breathing problems all her life and walking problems. And there was something called the 50-year syndrome and it was all coming back. And she was, or is it the 40-year syndrome? It must be 40 years. And it was all the effects were coming back and she was not at all well, which is why they went to live in warmer climates in the Caribbean. And my father was almost 80. It was the end of the millennium. And they, the, the last book they, they did was called Shattered. And it was very well named because they were shattered by the experience. In fact, when I went out to their home to collect the manuscript to bring it back to the publisher, doesn't that sound old fashioned? Uh, but the, you didn't email things in those days, even though it's only 22 years ago. Uh, the book was only two thirds written. So I literally sat down at the dining room table and wrote the last third of that book and, of course, didn't tell anybody. Didn't certainly didn't tell the publisher. The book went in. My father and mother read what I'd written and made a few changes and suggestions, but in it went. And But they announced, when the book was published in October 2000, they announced that they were going to retire. And my mother's long and happy retirement lasted just for three weeks, and then she succumbed to a heart attack um, and, and um, died sorry, and yeah, died no. very suddenly. And my father, uh, whose 80th birthday was that month, he reiterated the fact that he'd retired, and everyone thought that that was the end of the Dick Francis novels. Anyway, uh, five years later, 2005, beginning of 2005, uh, my father's literary agent asked me to go and have lunch with him. And it was, we had lunch in the Gay Hazar in Greek Street, which sadly is no longer there. But gone? Uh, yes, it's uh, gone. It was uh, a, a den of conspiracy. It is often said that the downfall of Margaret Thatcher was 
conspired in the gay hazard. Anyway, we had the lunch and the agent said to me, he said, Felix, we've got a problem. He said, uh, all your father's books are going to go out of print. Nowadays, of course, books don't go out of print because you have print on demand. But even that was not the case uh, 17 years ago. And I thought that was a bit of a problem. And the agent said, it's not that the stories aren't good enough. It's just that, you know, there are 70,000 books published in this country every year and the bookshops haven't got room for the new ones, yet alone for the old ones. And he said to me, he said, what we need is a new hardback, a new Dick Francis hardback, just to stimulate the backlist. Well, I looked at him as if he was crazy. I mean, my mother had been dead for five years. My father was now 85, you know, and God bless him, he could hardly remember what he had for breakfast, yet alone enough to write a book. And the agent said, no, actually, what I'm asking is your permission to ask an existing established crime writer if he would write a Dick Francis novel by so-and-so just to stimulate the backlist. Well, I must have had a few glasses of red wine over lunch by this stage, and I said to the agent, well, before you ask anyone else, I would like to have a go. And to his eternal credit, he didn't roll his eyes or laugh. He simply said, I'll give you two months to write two chapters. And I went home, I wrote the two chapters, I sent them back in. The agent openly admits now that he thought that after those two months he'd get my permission to ask who he wanted. And he said, well, there's two things you've got to do. One, you better get on and finish it. And secondly, you better go and talk to your father. And I went to talk to my father and I said, we need a new hardback. No, he said. I said, it could be a Sid Halley book because you've used Sid Halley in the past. No, he said. I said, I've got a title for it. And he said, what title's that? And I said, Under Orders. It was a race-fixing book, so it was the perfect title. And Under Orders came out in September 2006. Didn't have my name on it. I wasn't allowed to say for eight years that I had actually written the whole book. And uh, it came out as a Dick Francis novel. It went to the top of the bestseller list on both sides of the Atlantic. Well, of course it did. It had Dick Francis on the cover, and I was sat there terrified that all the reviews would say Dick has lost it. And the New York Times review said, had the headline, The Master is Back. And the publishers then wanted another one. And the second one I wrote was called Dead Heat. And it was going to be another Dick Francis only. But uh, the American publishers took fright and thought they might get sued for passing off. So it had Dick Francis in the biggest font they could find and Felix Francis in the smallest one on the front. And um, I've been writing them ever since. I mean, when we had both names on the front, uh, as Lee was saying earlier, as, sorry, as Andrew was saying earlier, people try and guess which parts Dick wrote or which parts Felix wrote. And some people would write in reviews and we can see which parts Felix wrote. Well, actually, the truth is that Felix wrote all of it. What about, you mentioned your wife. Tell us a bit about her professionally. Yeah, my wife, uh, she writes as Tasha Alexander, and she writes um, a series of historical mysteries. And uh, the irony is, is that she is American, but she writes about a, 
an, an English heroine. <laughs> I'm English and I write about American heroes. So um, we have a great time, you know, talking about the weird nuances of, of the differences between the, the two cultures, you know, the famous two nations divided by a common language. And so, um, she, you know, she, she thought about it very carefully because she's, she's a trained historian and she wanted to find the right point in history to set her books and really she'd have liked to do it in the medieval times because that's her favorite historical period but you couldn't realistically have a female protagonist in those days with the freedom to do what was necessary to, to make the stories interesting so she found a, a, the period of time in uh, the beginning in 1890 where in England the law had changed to enable a woman a widow to inherit her husband's property in her own right. So she, in her first book, has her heroine, Lady Emily, uh, finally gives in to her mother's badgering and marries someone, more or less to get away from the mother, get her off her case. And the person she married promptly got killed on safari in Africa. So Hence, Lady Emily uh, inheriting irrevocably a huge fortune. And has freedom. Yeah, and has freedom. But then what happened was, you know, Emily hadn't really thought that much about the person she married. She was young. She had other things on her mind. But then when she started to look at her late husband's possessions, she found a load of his diaries and discovered that he had admired her from afar. And when he read, when she read all about him, realized how fascinating he was and what a good guy he was, and actually started falling in love with him backwards, because it was only after he was dead that she really found out who he was. And then, of course, became suspicious about the, the nature of his death off in Africa and started investigating. And that really set the scene for somebody who had developed a, a taste for and skill at investigating. Well, I'm hearing lots of yeah. overlap here, you know, secret diaries, mysterious deaths. Do you worry about deliberately or accidentally stealing or having stolen your good ideas when you're chatting with each other? Not, not really, honestly, because... Um, there certainly is some overlap, but the characters are so different and the worlds that they operate in are so different. And, um, you know, I, I tend to write about, you know, even before Reacher, I would tend to write about characters that would were much more sort of violent and brutal and took much more direct approaches to, uh, to solving their problems. Whereas a Victorian widow, you know, she's not going to be shooting people. She's not going to be beating them up and throwing them off buildings. She actually has to use her wit and her intelligence intelligence a lot more to think her way out of the problems and think her way to the solutions. Um, she can't demolish things in quite the way that Richard can. There were some extraordinary women Victorian explorers and women who went over to Africa. I mean, there are all these stories about, you know, them beating off crocodiles with umbrellas and things like this, you know, these fearsome viragos who just didn't put up with any nonsense whatsoever. I, I think they're... Um, and wearing corsets and, and multiple absolutely, yeah. in the heat. I remember reading about one about one lady, and they said, "Well, aren't you worried about you know people firing darts at you?" And she goes, "No, I've got a leather skirt for that." You know, it's like they just, 
just not, they were utterly fearless these women they were just brilliant they were and that that's really where you get into that truth being stranger than fiction category yeah, yeah. you know tasha always reads all of the primary sources before she she starts on a book and she wrote one that was set in constantinople and um you're absolutely right the the kind of women that were around at the time i think you know wives of ambassadors things like that the stuff that they did and the fearlessness with which they approached these these environment you know tasha went to istanbul to do some research and people i forget how many years ago that was maybe 2008 or something like that even then people were saying to oh my goodness you can't go to istanbul it will be too dangerous and here we had people in the 1890s doing just that and going anywhere and doing anything it's just extraordinary how brave and how how much these people refuse to be constrained by the conventions well you don't need to tell the francis family that uh, fact is uh, stranger than fiction if i wrote devon lock into a book everyone would say that couldn't possibly happen you, maybe for people listening outside britain tell us well De- devon lock was a horse owned by uh, her majesty queen elizabeth queen mother and my father rode it in the 1956 Grand National. And the Grand National is four and a half miles long. And he'd done all but the last 40 yards and was five or six lengths in front. And everyone was expecting a, a royal victory. And the horse suddenly collapsed underneath my father, uh, just 40 yards short of the uh, of the winning post. My father always maintained it was the noise of the crowd frightened the horse. Because if you look at the the film because it wasn't actually televised at the time, but it was on the Pathé newsreel. And if you look at the the horse pricks his ears just before it, it goes down, and, and it pricking your ears, it means the horse can suddenly hear. And my father says that the, the wall of noise that hit the horse just stopped things working for a moment. I mean, it's actually quite a surprise to me that I ever made it to my fourth birthday, because I was three at the time, and... Uh, according to my mother, I would scamper across the sitting room floor and I'd throw my hands out in front and my legs out behind and shout, I'm being Devon locked, down I go bump, uh, which was possibly not the most tactful thing for a three-year-old to do when your father has just failed to win the Grand National in such dramatic fashion. But Dad always believed that later in life he, he probably owed more to Devon Lock's collapse and he probably would have never written anything because... It was as a result of that incident that a literary agent approached him and said, um, Dick, uh, would, it's a good peg to hang an autobiography on. I mean, nowadays, all sportsmen write autobiographies yeah. almost before they're out of, you know, before they're 21. But uh, in those days, they were rare. And Dad wrote um, a book. Racing, of course, is known as the sport of kings. And because he'd ridden for the Queen and the Queen Mother, he decided to call it the sport of queens, which you know, he always said perhaps he wouldn't call it that these days. And, and John Junov, who, who was the uh, editor of the Sunday Express in London, had um, heard about this and said, well, if, you can, if you're writing a book, you must be able to write a few words. So would you, write, would you come and write articles on racing for my newspaper? And Dad always said that's what taught him to write. Well, speaking of books, it'd be good to hear from some of them. I wonder... I've got a pile of Andrew Grant books and I've also got the new Jack Reacher, which is Lee Child. I'm afraid that's in bigger letters than Andrew Child at the minute. But anyway, Andrew Child, would you fancy reading a bit from No Plan B? 
I will certainly try it, although I must warn you that my reading glasses broke earlier today, so I'm, I'm going to have to uh, hold this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. Let me try. Let, let. Are they any good? Actually, they are. Oh, it turns <laughs> out you. that Felix's glasses suit Andrew. Okay, let's have a look. You can cut out all of this silence, I hope. <laughs> oh, yes. Rachel said nothing. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> okay, let's just think of a good place to start. The museum didn't open the next day until 10am, so Richard and Alexandra stayed in bed until the last possible minute. They stayed in bed, but they didn't spend all their time sleeping. Alexandra knew she was cutting it fine, but she took a quick shower anyway. She felt it was wise after their recent level of activity. Richard made coffee. Then she kissed him goodbye and hurried away to her chosen slice of the past. Richard took a more leisurely shower, then made his way down the stairs and out onto the sidewalk. He was thinking about his more immediate future. He paused to gaze at the mountains for a moment. Then he saw a woman walking towards them. She was on the other side of the street, heading west, almost at the intersection. The don't walk sign was lit up. A guy was standing on the opposite corner, waiting for it to change, and a bus was heading north, about to pass between them. The bus driver only saw movement, not much more than a blur, low and to her right, a spherical object swinging down and around through a quarter of a perfect circle, like a melon had somehow been attached to the end of a rope, she told the mandatory councillor the following day. Only it wasn't a melon, it was a head, a human head, it was female, inches from the windshield. There, bright and pale in the sunshine, like it already belonged to a ghost, then gone. But not because the driver had imagined it, not because it was an illusion like she prayed for it to be, because it continued on its arc, all the way to the ground, in front of the bus, then under it. The driver veered hard to the left. She threw all her weight onto the brake. No hesitation, no panic. She was well-trained. She had years of experience, but she was still too late. She heard the tyres squeal, heard her passengers scream, and felt the impact through the steering wheel, just a slight, muted ripple running around the hard plastic rim. Less of a jolt than if she'd driven through a deep pothole or hit a log, but then asphalt doesn't have bones that crush and shatter. Wood doesn't have organs that rupture and bleed. The guy on the opposite corner saw a lot more. He saw the bus heading north. He saw the woman arrive at the southeast corner of the intersection. He had an unobstructed view. He was close enough to be credible. In his statement, he said the woman looked nervous, twitchy. He saw her check her watch. At first, she fi he figured she was in a hurry. He thought she was going to try to cross, in front, cross the street before the bus got too close. But she didn't. She stopped. She stood and squirmed and fidgeted until the bus was almost alongside her, until there was no chance for it to slow or swerve. Then she dived under its wheels. The woman dived. The guy was certain about that. She didn't trip. She didn't fall. It was a deliberate act. He could tell from the timing. The way her body accelerated, the curve it moved through, the precise aim. There was no way it could have been an accident. She had done it on purpose. He could see no other explanation. Reacher was the only one who saw the whole picture. Oh, good reading. So who, who, who does the audiobooks? Um, they're different in, in different countries, and I forget who does them here, actually. Maybe you should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have to work on my American okay. accent. You work on your voices. Mm -hmm. yes. yeah. Okay, well, that's an exclusive mm -hmm. 
exclusive Andrew Grant reading from No Plan B. Jack, read your book. I think we'll take a break and finish this part two of this episode of Weed Like a Word here with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And we'll see you in part three. <laughs>